Good evening to everyone joining us in Asia and a good day to all others. Welcome to the latest in our IPS online forum sessions. As we are constantly trying to learn to improve our online interactions with you, may I please ask for your feedback on the session in the form that is posted on the Facebook comment section. Today, our topic is senior care in the age of pandemics, a matter that has been brought to the fore by COVID-19's specific impact on seniors requiring care in their homes and in community settings. I have the pleasure of introducing Ms. Yvonne Arivalagen, aging and health policy researcher and a fellow at the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Longevity, and also a dear friend and alumnus of the Institute. She will moderate and lead today's session and introduce the esteemed panel of speakers. Over to you, Yvonne. Thank you, Chris, for the introduction. Um, so the COVID-19 crisis has indeed pushed aged care providers and consumers toward a new normal, with technology playing a greater role in the management and delivery of care services. Telehealth, AI, virtual communications, and other technologies have seen dramatic growth uh, in recent months. At the same time, there have also been concerns about the digital estrangement of older adults, as some seniors struggle to adapt to these new conditions. There are also long-standing concerns uh, that technologies designed for older adults, such as robots or AI tools, uh, focus excessively on their frailty and adversely affect their autonomy and self-determination. So some questions that we hope to address in this forum are, what is the realistic role of technology in caring for seniors during and post pandemic? What does the use of technology say about how a society cares for its older people and what good senior care looks like in a modern digital world? And of course, uh, what policies and solutions are needed to address some of the above challenges? So to discuss these issues, we have four expert panelists joining us today. And now we'll hear some opening remarks from each of them. Uh, first up, we have Ms. Suyun Pang. Suyun is a member of the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Longevity. She was the former head of Philips Population Health Management uh, business in Philips ASEAN Pacific, uh, responsible for the rollout of technology-enabled clinical program programs in the post-discharge and community sector. She also has deep experience with continuity of care and step-down uh, sector in Singapore, having led NTUC Health Home Care, one of the largest providers of home care services in Singapore. Uh, so Suyun, could you give us an overview of some of the major types of technologies in senior care and what the impact of these solutions could be? Yeah. Over to you. Sure. Thanks, Yvonne. Um, as most of you know, health, the healthcare industry is not known for moving fast, but this pandemic has really accelerated the change in technology adoption and care, model, and, and care models. In the last few months, we've seen a rapid adoption of existing healthcare technologies and also accelerated approval for new technologies. Um, many people are describing this as 10 years worth of change in three months. For the purposes of today's discussion, I think it'd be useful for us to think of technology in three categories. The first are home care solutions, and this has been the area that has been most exciting over the last three months. Um, here we have home care solutions such as telemedicine, uh, which in, uh, of which teleconsultations has been the most rapidly uh, adopted in the last few months. It also includes other telehealth solutions for personal safety, such as uh, activity monitoring, uh, false detection, um, vital signs monitoring technologies that can be used for chronic disease management, tele-rehab, 
medication management to remind the elderly to take their drugs, and also technologies used for companionship. Um, there are more cutting edge solutions that use, for example, VR for dementia management, uh, and also the area of uh, tele-diagnosis uh, and also tele-treatment. Um, the second type I think we can discuss are the institutional care technologies that could be used in nursing homes and, and also daycare centers. These tend to be more many-to-one uh, technologies such as you know, many-to-one vital signs monitoring, robots in nursing homes for food service, robotic lifts uh, to help uh, move bed-bound patients, and RFID-enabled activity and, and false detection technologies that could be used. The final category, and maybe the most prosaic one, uh, the ent is enterprise software. Right? Uh, the popular software such as EMR, uh, enterprise billing, care coordination, uh, bed management solutions. Uh, so also newer ideas like command center software, predictive analytics to predict disease deterioration and uh, care paths. Uh, so as you can see, there is an exciting world of, of IT for, for technology. But uh, lest I be accused of pushing technology uh, just for the sake of technology, I do have to make a point that in healthcare, as in other industries, we really need to evaluate technologies for their value to the industry. Um, and in healthcare, we talk about uh, needing to achieve the quadruple aim, right? That for patients, we want to improve health outcomes, lower the long-term cost of care, and for the healthcare worker, uh, the technology needs to improve their effectiveness and productivity and also improve their work satisfaction. So I hope uh, in, in today's conversations about technology adoption, we'll, we'll think about this quadruple aim. Great, thank you very much Suyun for that very helpful breakdown of the major categories of technologies used in senior care. And I'm sure uh, that'll guide our discussion later. So up next, we have Mr. Tirupati Kartik. Karthik is the Chief Executive Officer of Napier Healthcare Solutions. As an elder care thought leader, he has been driving productivity agendas for aged care models globally and seen to the expansion of Napier's product vision. Uh, applying AI-enabled solutions to elder care providers offering nursing home, home care and activity center services, uh, Napier today enables productivity and improved quality of care. So Karthik, in your view, how has COVID impacted the use of technology in senior care and what are some potential benefits and challenges that you see in this area? I think you're on mute, Karthik. Yeah, thank you, Yvonne. Uh, I think before I get to that point, uh, might I add one or two observations of my own? Uh, these are based on some of the data I have seen. Uh, what I realized also as COVID unfolded in the last few months, uh, we have elderly not only as recipients of care, but we also have elderly who are delivering care. A lot of them are exposed to uh, COVID as well, and I think that's a point that we miss. Uh, the other part is, uh, I was looking at the statistics which says uh, the you know death rate is the highest in the elderly segment over 65, but what I also realized immediately beneath that was the age category of 50 to 59 years who were the most affected ones. Uh, I think these were affected because unlike the categorization of aged uh, people, which is over the age of 65, these people are still involved in the workforce to some extent or the other. 
So I think these are two points I just wanted to share a brief uh, spotlight on before we go on to looking at what COVID has done and how technology is kind of uh, you know, uh, accelerating to meet some of those challenges. Uh, the impact I see uh, is on the mental health, <clears throat> mostly the loneliness, the isolation, the anxiety and things like that. But at the same time, uh, I think it's very fortunate for us that uh, we have this technology, which I think even Ziyun mentioned earlier, which is the telemedicine. Telemedicine has been around for the longest time from what I remember. I think I first heard references to te you know telemedicine way back in 99 or 2000. And if you use uh, a little bit of a stretch of your imagination, and uh, if I delivered a consult over a telephone, and that's called a teleconsult, then I think telemedicine is even older in my view. Uh, but jokes uh, apart, uh, what, what I have seen is uh, we've done a few quick projects and uh, these were hospitals who wanted us to quickly implement the remote patient management solution for behavior health consultation more than anything else. Um, I think there is a huge uh, demand that healthcare workers and providers are facing in this particular uh, you know, requirement that uh, they get a lot of uh, inquiries for. Uh, at this point, I also want to talk about some of the work we had done in Singapore where we had uh, you know, uh, deployed this technology in the suburb of Chai Chi. Uh, just to make one point, which is elderly are not technology averse. When we took a survey at the end of the chronic disease management, which was uh, pilot, uh, sponsored by the IMDA in Singapore, we found that they were very happy. They did not have any problems. And uh, the best part they said to us was, uh, we like the remote patient uh, management technology because I can always talk to someone across the phone uh, when there is no one at home. I'm quite lonely at home. Again, this goes back to my point about uh, loneliness and isolation that we spoke of earlier. I think these are some points we would like to probably discuss a little bit more. Uh, AI is at the part. Uh, AI typically tends to talk of uh, systems and systems-driven AI, uh, whereas my view is that AI should also take into account both structured and unstructured data. Uh, unstructured data that comes out of social media. There are a lot of pointers to isolation. People go and say in social media, you know, I was all alone at home and things like that. Can I take some of that and you know uh, develop uh, some interventions to that? End of the day, uh, from what I have seen or what we have tried to deliver in Napier is use all these data points to understand the needs of a patient. And if I were to distill that down, it boils down to driving effective care plans, care plans that can be monitored. And uh, you could have a care plan for a social need. You could have a care plan for a uh, you know, medical treatment or a clinical pathway as well. But uh, care plans are needed nevertheless. And I think that's one of the things. Uh, to me, the biggest problem with COVID is uh, in this era, uh, we, what we need most is social care and how we don't let social distancing morph into social isolation. I think that's, that's the key thing that we need to look at as we discuss some of these uh, points here. Uh, thank you, Yvonne. Great, thank you very much, Karthik. Um, so next, joining us all the way from the UK, we have Professor Helen Sanderson. Helen is the founder of Wellbeing Teams, innovative, small, self-managed neighborhood teams inspired by the Björtsorg model from the Netherlands. She is award-winning for innovation in health and care and value-based recruitment, 
Helen is also a visiting professor in digital solutions with the University of Chester and co-founder of the charity Community Circles, creating solutions to loneliness together. So Helen, from your experience working with well-being teams, uh, how can technologies be deployed sensitively in the care of older adults? And what are some challenges or opportunities in, in doing this? Go ahead. Thank you, Yvonne. In wellbeing teams, we've been using technology in three ways. The first is to support staff, uh, to support our colleagues in the way that they help older people. And I'll talk a little bit about that. For health as well as what colleagues have mentioned, but also about well-being and relationships. So well-being teams deliver relationship-based care, and we've been looking at how technology can support and enable that. And Atal Gwandi said the three challenges with old age is helplessness, loneliness, and boredom. And I think technology's got a contribution to each of those areas as well. But if we start with colleagues, with well-being workers, um, all of our care plans are on a secure app, which means that well-being workers have got access to all the information about what matters to people, not just their conditions, but what matters to people and what's expected from the well-being worker on each visit. We've also have uh, used Slack and a secure version of Slack, which is how the teams talk to each other on a minute by minute, day by day basis. It also means that I can have oversight about what's happening in everybody's life. But for each person we support, there's a separate channel on Slack. So I know, for example, if somebody's commode lid is broken uh, or if a team member is asking for somebody else to pick up a bottle of milk on their way around to support people. And what team members tell us is using technology that way for team members to stay in touch on, a, as I said, a moment by moment basis stops us being what can be a lonely uh, job. The other way that we stop it being a lonely job is we have a team meeting every week and that's quite unusual in care in the UK. Our team meetings about an hour and a half and of course through Covid we moved from face to face team meetings onto Zoom and that's been working, uh, working really well. So team members would say we're using technology to stay in touch much better with people but also it's enabled us to have a different contact with families. So families can be given permission by the older person to access part of our app, part of the care plans and after every visit we write a report called a learning log about what's worked and what's not worked from the visit and what we can learn from it and families are able to access that. So one of the guys we were supported lives in Canada and when they woke up in the morning the first thing the two sons did was look on the app to see what happened to their dad in the last eight hours by reading the, the learning logs. So again I think we can use technology to keep families really much more closely connected to what's happening with their loved one. So we use it as a version of telehealth, not in the formal way that you've had described. But when I was supporting, so I would go on shift myself once, once a month. And when I was supporting somebody called Anne, she had a, a sort of skin tag on her leg that I was concerned about. Because of the app that we used, it meant that with Anne's permission, I could take a photo of it, upload it onto her care plan, alert her daughter to it in case she hadn't seen it, uh, with a request that if this um, looks different in two days time, one of us could uh, arrange a consultation with a GP. So again, that deep connection with family and their involvement too. 
Um, we've been testing wearables, um, both for force prevention, but also for dehydration. So we know that an older person is more likely to end up in hospital through dehydration and through a fall. So there are devices you can put on, on kettles uh, and on toilets so that you can see how much people are drinking. I think the future is on a monthly basis would be reviewing health data from wearables with the person and saying, what do we need to be doing differently based on what your sleep uh, um, patterns are telling us, what your, your um, how well you're walking and stuff is telling us. So one older person that we were piloting with turned her home into a smart home. So she used um, video camera to let people through the door. She used Alexa to be charging her wheelchair and drawing her curtains. And she was delighted, delighted with that. So again, our assumptions that older people don't like tech um, are being deeply challenged by some of this work. And then when we think about um, loneliness and helplessness and boredom, we have robot cats that we've been using, particularly with some people who are experiencing dementia that they found very soothing. We were using Alexa for audiobooks with people and for setting alarms. Zooms to connect people with friends and family. So if we were coming to support you to uh, create a meal on a Friday night and you had relatives in Australia, we could set you up with Zoom so you could chat to them while we were supporting um, your food. We, we were using spa music on our phones. We have a philosophy in wellbeing teams that every shower can be a spa experience and every cream application on your foot can be a massage. Um, we were using apps. So I think there's a massive opportunity to use apps with people. So we were using Headspace and other mindfulness apps with some people for whom that was important to them. We were using VR for pain relief. Uh, but one of the biggest things was something that's called Circle Connect, which is on Facebook, where we were putting on social events, uh, community events that people could access through tablets. We bought a number of tablets to distribute to people through COVID as a way of keeping them in touch with people. So we, whether that was reading poetry, whether that was um, home gardening, um, whether that was um, online yoga, armchair yoga, I think we could recreate a lot of the so-called activities that happen at care homes um, online via Facebook. And we've been testing that out through Circle Connect. So I think my I'm excited about the use of technology for making um, work better for carers, uh, both deeply connected and um, uh, more efficient, but also for tackling loneliness and boredom in people's lives, too. So I'm, I'm grateful to be part of this discussion today. Great. Thank you very much, Helen. I think we heard some very interesting uh, community solutions there. Uh, and last but not least, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Ng Wai Chong. Uh, Wai Chong is, of course, no stranger to Singapore's aged care sector, having, a having been a practicing community aged care family physician since the late 90s. His clinical and research interests include uh, primary health care for the frail, uh, elder mistreatment, dementia care, sustainable community aged care systems, end-of-life care, and comprehensive needs assessments. He was the Chief of Clinical Affairs of South Foundation and is now supporting the foundation as its clinical program consultant. Uh, so Wai Chong, we've seen how some older adults in, in Singapore may have felt a sense of displacement during the pandemic because they may not have the skills to take advantage of technology. So as a family physician, what, what is your sense as to how older adults are managing this increasing digitization of so many aspects of their lives and how can tech play a role in their well-being at this time? I think you're on mute, Wai Chung. 
Okay, um, thanks Yvonne for the introduction. Um, yeah, indeed, I'm, I'm still uh, um, doing home care and uh, ambulatory clinic uh, sessions with the uh, South Foundation. And in my work, I do see uh, more seniors complaining of uh, symptoms suggestive of uh, anxiety and maybe uh, mood disorders, mental health, loneliness, boredom, caregiver stress, um, and my colleagues are reporting increased uh, even incidents of elder abuse. And, um, and so, uh, indeed, I think this uh, um, pandemic has a toll, particularly on the mental health and social connectedness of people. And I totally agree with Katik's emphasis on uh, mental health, particularly um, uh, people with cognitive disability. Such as dementia. So, um, so to, but uh, having said all this, um, I also agree with all of you who mentioned that uh, seniors are not um, entirely unused to or um, uh, uh, or alienated from technology. Many of them are already embracing and swimming in it every day. So, um, you asked me whether. Uh, the, the role of digitization apart from care. And uh, later on this evening, 7.30 is my usual crowd with seniors who are retirees in the 70s and 60s. Instead of meeting at one of our homes, for the last three months, we have been meeting online to do qigong and also to do meditation and then to discuss about various things, you know, just to chit-chat and, and that. And as a doctor, um, social isolation, loneliness is... Is, is a worse risk than smoking is to life expectancy. So um, to me, that was very heartening. And uh, um, so I think uh, if you are able to help um, seniors access to technology and you don't really need to invent new technology, you can just use whatever is available. And the idea is technology needs to support life rather than life fit into what technology is um, able to deliver. So life among us was like we are a group of friends, seniors, friends, meeting regularly to do qigong and then meditation and chit-chat and have uh, snacks together. And now we are doing on Zoom. And we are also for the last um, few years, we've been talking about creating a kind of retirement community, retirement village together. And then with the COVID-19, the plan is slightly shifted. Instead of a big multi-story buildings, we could have small houses. So I think the, the pandemic really helped us rethink how long-term care could be designed. Rather than big, it could be small. Rather than institution, it could be decentralized. So there are many of these that are really um, uh, stimulating and inspiring new innovations. So, um, but the, the main, main issue um, related to technology, what stops people from using? is not so much um, the, uh, it, 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 there are many act factors. I usually use the, the scheme of these six, um, six areas. Accessibility, you need to make it accessible. So the hardware and the software and the user interface need to be really, really useful. And then available, it should be available. Is 3G broadband, 5G um, uh, widely available? And how's the pricing? Is it affordable? And then is it acceptable? Acceptability is about um, humans, you know. If their friends are, are, are using it and everybody is sharing, like my mom is sharing all sorts of memes on her WhatsApp and uh, 
after she discovered smartphone, there was no barrier. Okay, so she was she was already accessing. So it's a culture and influenced by friends and families. And lastly, it's about the accountability. So um, it is good that um, uh, we are even beginning to regulate telemedicine and creating a sandbox and the Ministry of Health. So um, with a new uh, uh, practice and uh, behaviors with regards to technology, um, the legislation, the policies, and the society will probably need to sort of rise to the occasion just to make sure that uh, the data are protected and the quality of care is uh, sort of maintained. So, um, yeah, so definitely there is more um, psychosocial crisis and uh, tech has really helped and is and, and health is not just medical, but it is also psychosocial and tech has helped a lot in this aspect and, um, and to make tech really meaningful, we have to look into the six A's. Great. Thank you very much, Wai Chong. Um, I think we have a very good breadth of topics to discuss uh, from uh, actually the fact that older adults are coping very well in many cases, the importance of relationships, community, and how COVID and technology is kind of getting us to rethink uh, long-term care, uh, come up with new ideas and concepts for it. So um, that, that was very good. Um, and you know, there are some very uh, kind of overlapping themes in here as well. Uh, so this leads us nicely into the discussion segment uh, for the next 30 minutes or so. So we hope to have a good free-flowing discussion. So while I may direct uh, questions to individual panelists, um, others can please feel free to chime in, just raise your hand and I'll get to you. Um, so for participants tuning in, just a, a reminder uh, to please already start thinking about or sending questions in on Facebook. Uh, we'll get to the questions during the Q&A segment around 6 p.m. or so, uh, which, which comes after this discussion segment. Uh, so I want to turn back to, to Suyu now. Uh, you described in your opening remarks some broad categories of technology. Uh, could we focus on one particular type of technology that has really taken off during COVID and that has been brought up by other panelists as well? That's telehealth. So we've heard of some of the benefits, right? But what are some challenges in shifting toward telehealth? And... What are some practical ways to design telehealth in a more age-friendly manner? Yeah. Um, so let's double click into telehealth. Uh, a lot of the telehealth that we've been talking about in the last three months is actually teleconsultations and not uh, telemonitoring. Uh, so let's just talk, let, let's focus on, on, on teleconsults and, and the, the, the challenges. I think uh, it's, it's useful to reference this latest piece of research that, just, uh, that was just published in June uh, that last month by the Journal of American Medical Association. Um, they, they did uh, a research pre-COVID among 2 million patients in uh, the Kaiser Permanente Network in Northern California. And there they found that there were two significant differences between uh, people who chose teleconsult and, uh, and, and people who didn't. The first difference was patient demographics. They found that patients over the age of 65 was actually were less likely to choose telemedicine compared to patients uh, aged 18 to 44. And technology access was significantly correlated with uh, the decision to choose telemedicine. So that's the first, just the demographics of, of, the, of the people who are, who are using telemedicine. The second barrier was, the second significant factor is barriers to office visits. And these barriers include uh, financial, um, such as the higher co-payments. So this, this references the whole healthcare financing framework. 
Um, other barriers were the longer travel distance. Uh, another interesting point was also whether the patient was seeing a regular GP, right? So this, I think, reference uh, comes back to whether they have an existing relationship with the GP. And the more comfortable they are with a GP, the more likely they are to be willing to use uh, technology to talk to the person, right? So that's a piece of American research. But I would suspect that in Singapore, the factors um, that that, 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 inhibit, that, that encourage or inhibit telemedicine uh, adoption will be the same, right? Demographics, uh, digital access, uh, the healthcare financing framework, right? The amount of co-payment that they have to pay, the travel distance, the relationship with the doctor. I think these, uh, will, these will, will, we will find the same uh, factors in Singapore. So that's, uh, these are factors influencing uh, the patient but of course, in the in the in the meta uh, arena, there will also be uh, there are also uh, policy considerations such as privacy, uh, the hosting of data, uh, factors like that that will uh, that will impact how we are able to scale telehealth in Singapore. Okay, thank you, Siyun. Um And I wanted to to ask a similar question to Karthik. Um, just now, you talked about in addition to telehealth, um, AI, and remote patient monitoring. Um, these were some of the, the, the topics that came up uh, in your opening remarks. So I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about uh, Napier's uh, AI and machine learning solutions. Um, so from what I read, you have an AI assistant, which is able to listen to voice and speech, understand the intent behind that, and then make decisions for, for doctors or what have you. Um, so, you know, we know that AI has got enormous potential, uh, you know, to address manpower shortages to promote healthy behavior and so on. Uh, but at the same time, there are concerns that it could perhaps erode autonomy and decision-making skills of users, right? So what are your views on this, particularly with regard to, to AI? And how do you think it can be uh, designed or applied in a more age-friendly manner? Right. Uh, I think I'll come to the uh, concerns about AI uh, at probably the second half of uh, my uh, response to that. But I think the the way I look at AI, uh, and I hinted about that in my opening remarks as well, the way uh, I would want to look at AI, the way Napier would like to look at AI is, it must integrate both structured and unstructured data, uh, which means I should not only depend on the data that is available in the IT systems of the organization, uh, and that kind of also leads me to one of the AI solutions that uh, we have kind of put together. Uh, you could use social media, you could use uh, deep web uh, media, uh, deep web data, you could use data coming from mobile phones, so on and so forth. And you could actually create, for example, in Singapore, I could create a cluster of uh, COVID uh, you know, infections in a map. And so we could use that and we could predict in future. Uh, and I think that predictive framework needs to be uh, looked at. Each country would do it differently, but at a regional level or a local level or a district level, uh, you know, you could do all of that. You could look at clusters that are coming up and forming. And this doesn't have to be for uh, COVID, right? It could also be for your regular flu season, the number of people visiting a doctor or a GP. And I could find out how many of them have, you know, said in their Facebook, oh, I'm down with cold or cough or whatever. And you could develop some kind of a heat map, so to speak. 
that is one use of uh, unstructured data the other use of unstructured data could be uh, today i think in covid times the contact tracing is a big issue why contact tracing is a big issue is like for example we have the tracer app in singapore um, and you know we now want to give out some of those uh, devices to people who don't have a smartphone for that matter and i think this is if in singapore this is a problem i would imagine some of the other countries it's going to be even worse so you again cannot depend on specific devices or one app to kind of make sure that you can trace effectively so once again you have to go back to the unstructured data and unstructured data actually can tell you exactly where you where a person that came into the hospital with covid symptoms visited in the last 14 days you can go back for years actually if uh, if you would actually believe that so those are the kind of things that you can bring together and deliver a solution for a pandemic uh, response in that sense the second part of it is where i would talk of the structured data where uh, using ai algorithms i can actually do uh, we have delivered things like a pneumonia predictor uh, you know i could do something like that i could do a covid predictor uh, along with chest x rays there are 13 other uh, symptoms including things like cardiomegaly which we can look at and you know uh, come up with some kind of decision aiding uh, tool for the clinical care teams that are involved in all of this now the significant thing that uh, i would like to impress upon everyone is ai is not a product um, so if if you would bear with me i just like to go into a short story right in the early 90s i first remember in i think it was 92 i used to work in those days for a large tech organization i sent a mail to someone and uh, immediately from north america that person responded and said oh my god how did this happen right and then very soon you had in the mid 90s uh, you know internet companies that had these fancy names i something and e something and all of that and uh, today of all of those i think only ebay is left over everyone's either kind of gone under changed their name or whatever the point i'm trying to make is internet is a way of doing things just like the way ai is a way of doing things you can't have an ai company or an ai product or whatever ai is a mindset and that's what we have to do so today if you look at it by that definition of the internet companies our kopitiyans and roti prata shops all are internet companies you know uh, they all use internet and they all use buzzers to tell you when the food is ready and the iots and all of that so do you call go around calling them internet companies you don't in the same manner i believe the ai companies will probably fade away eventually as everyone starts to deliver ai in the way they think and uh, quite happy to say that with that kind of an approach napier has already done a lot of work all our products all the features are already getting ai enabled wherever we can wherever we can think of a use case and that's the change that we need to bring in now let me come to the second part of what you asked which is uh, you know could this erode our autonomy and decision making capabilities of the users and all of that and is it uh, something that poses a threat to all of us uh to answer that we need to go uh, one step back and understand how ai solutions are built ai solutions are built by people who decide on an algorithm and then train the machine using the data that is available to kind of come up and learn and that's that process i'm putting it very simplistically that process is called machine learning so there is an algorithm that learns off the data that it has been provided with and then it gives you some of the insights 
to help you make a decision now if you understand this the other part is we cannot therefore surpass what we don't fully understand which means i can't build something that will overtake you me and everyone else that's actually built it so which means the child can't be intelligent than the father in that sense right uh, so i think that's one 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 point i would like to make to everyone who uh, you know talks of the worry or anxiety that uh, ai uh, brings forward in almost every conversation the second part of it is uh, legislation will catch up uh, just like the way we had when the first motors were uh, you know automobiles were invented and when the first uh, railroads were invented there was no legislative framework but over a period of time the legislative framework has come and today what we regard as being normal never existed before at one point in time in the same way legislation will also catch up with ai uh singapore for example we have published the second model framework second edition rather of the model framework earlier this year i think the first one came out uh probably jan 2019 um and why why i make a reference to that is there are two key points we want to bear in mind and these are the guiding principles uh that ai model framework says decisions made by ai should be explainable transparent and fair at the same time ai system should be human centric these are the guiding principles now uh, i know that singapore is not the only country there are a few other progressive nations as well that are actually putting together some kind of a model framework in place and i think everyone will eventually get to that and there will be a legislation people will try to learn from each others uh, experiences on legislation and uh, enforcement and all of that um like the famous uh, future is grace part said the real question therefore is when will we draft an uh, artificial intelligence bill of rights what will that consist of but more importantly who will get to decide that and i think that then will probably define our fundamental rights as we know them today in most of the constitutions that are written uh, in the countries uh, i hope that kind of gives you some perspective on ai and this whole uh, technology um yeah thank you karthik i think you know especially when you framed ai as the way of of thinking a way of working rather than a product itself and so you can see many ways in which it is already part of the the the, the communities that we live in the systems that we are a part of um i want to give helen and wai chong a, a chance to comment on both uh, siyun and karthik's uh, comments on telehealth and ai um I, so in yeah so in terms of what they've already said in terms of uh, and especially given both of your interactions with older adults um you know on a day to day basis with caregivers as well any kind of interaction with telehealth or ai that you may have already seen or any comments on this on this point before we move on uh maybe helen first and then wachong yeah um i think that was such a beautiful description of of ai and why we don't call shops internet businesses that, that's excellent um i'm i'm excited about it one of the areas that we don't pay enough attention to but is massive in relation to all of our mental health is our ability to sleep well 
And I think if we start using data, for example, I'm wearing a wearable at the moment. I'm sure lots of people watching this are as well. The first thing I do in the morning is look at my REM sleep and my deep sleep and my overall sleep score. I think using AI to come up with a range of solutions that supports people to sleep, that we can then give people options. So if, if I'm supporting somebody, an older person, I'm saying, let's look at your health data and particularly your sleep data over the last couple of weeks. And it tells me this, this and this. And I can then share with you, here, based on this, uh, through AI, although we wouldn't, I wouldn't be saying through AI, you know, here's six potential solutions that we could be testing around your sleep over the next two weeks. And we can track which solution makes the most difference through um, capturing it on wearables. So I am massively pro the sensitive use of, of AI to support people to make more informed decisions about their health and their life. Thanks, Helen. Yep. Yeah, thanks. And uh, just like to comment on Zuyun's suggestion of the teleconsult. Uh, and indeed, uh, the findings about um, people are more comfortable to, to uh, engage in teleconsultation with a primary physician that they know is very important for my consideration. I only, I mean, in my own practice uh, now, uh, I do a lot of Zoom consultation, WhatsApp consultation, video conferencing, and so on. But it's only for patients and the families whom we have um, a relationship with. This is to ensure that, uh, uh, that as a doctor, I don't miss out on uh, nuances of the, of, the, uh, of the goals of care and also the stress and also the um, ideas and concerns. And of course, also uh, medically, uh, you need to be very comfortable and thorough in your assessment. So sometimes an online platform may not be sufficient. So I, I don't do acute teleconsult, but I do teleconsult for patients whom I know for a long time. I've been doing this for the last 20 years. Um, so I think that's, uh, uh, that means no matter how teleconsult develop, I feel the, 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 the trust between humans will always be relevant. Um, then with regards to the... Um, AI and all that. I like what Katik uh, um, uh, characterized it as not really a product or a service. It's really a way of doing things. And um, for a while now, I've been like, uh, um, like, uh, how should I put it? Advocating for a kind of a standardized data collection with regards to aged care. So it's really about how we manage data, big data, the quality of data, analysis, and, uh, um, and how can it be used to, uh, of course, how we protect the data, but also how can it be used to uh, give um, good decision support? Because with that, then as a doctor providing teleconsult, and if the other end, the assessment has been fairly thorough, I'll be, in a way, my work will be more efficient. I don't have to, do a home visit just to collect all the data I need based on the previous assessment by perhaps a visiting nurse or a very well-trained uh, non-nurse but uh, a care worker, I'm able to understand what are the areas of care, what are the priorities, and this can help me as a, a, a doctor, a nurse, an a advanced practice nurse to really amplify their reach and care. So I think um, the use of uh, big data will, in a way, in the future, might um, democratize care and then uh, and then the role of the the experts or the technical experts will really be just for the technical expertise and the older persons themselves and their families will be empowered to make decisions for them so if you can do it this way I think all these um, development would be uh, would be a would be a good thing 
Yeah. And then what's left uh, is focus on the real thing. And what's the real thing? Mental health. Correct. <laughs> Psychosocial exactly. connectedness. And meaning, exactly. you know, human development, human growth, human connectedness. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Karthik, you had a point? <laughs> yes. Uh, I just wanted to add to uh, Dr. Ng's uh, point about, uh, you know, getting a set of decision-making points. And that's what AI is all about. So in the example I gave of uh, pneumonia detection, typically uh, a radiologist has a lot of x-rays to read and you know they have to certify which ones need to be uh, looked at and so on and so forth. What AI can do is if I feed an x-ray into the Napier pneumonia detection algorithm, for example, it will tell you, please take a look at these top 10 out of the 100 ones first because there seems to be some issue. So he can clear that out first and then get to the remaining. It doesn't, remember, it doesn't still take away the fact that he has to certify the remaining readings as well. But all that it does is he's able to then prioritize his work because the remaining 80 or 90 of them could be routine stuff, which probably does not have so much of an issue. So that's, that's what I meant as, as an AI, as an aid to decision-making and does not replace this person ever because there is always a margin of error that we say, you know, even if it is 99.99, which means out of thousand, there'll be one which AI will get it wrong, right? So you cannot displace human beings ever. And in the, in the point that uh, I think Helen also mentioned, right? Uh, when you're discussing with the patients and saying that these are the six kind of ways in which I could engage with you, and AI could actually tell you that of the six based on their uh, clinical EMR data that I have, longitudinal EMR data that I have, probably the first two are the most apt ones for whatever reason. And you could start discussing with them on that basis rather than discussing all six in a randomized order. I'm not saying by that as a clinician, one would not know which is the right one, but I'm just saying it will give you a more uh, predictive approach to those discussions. And again, it forms the basis for a decision-making, not decision-making itself. Sure, thank you, Karthik. Uh, Siyun as well, do you have a point? Yeah, I'd like to add two points about mental health. Uh, mm -hmm. I think mental health, I, I know that today's discussion is about the use of technology, but I think in addressing mental health and social isolation and loneliness, the technology solutions don't have to be very high tech. Is because social isolation and loneliness is about the lack of human connection. A dumb phone is sufficient for that human connection. We don't need a smartphone, though it helps. Uh, so that's the first point. And the second point about social isolation and, and loneliness is um, that there are, there are at least three different uh, uh, causes of, of, of uh, social isolation and loneliness. And the first two, you know, lack of an intimate partner, a lack of family and friends, that is self-evident. But I, I would like to put forward that there is actually another cause of social isolation and loneliness, which is uh, related to how a person may feel a lack of meaningful connection to society in general. Right. And for the elderly, it often comes in the form of um, that when they retire, they, they feel that they have stopped contributing from society and that society now views the elderly as a burden. Um, and I think it's particularly salient in uh, COVID-19 because a lot of the discussion of the elderly during this COVID-19 has been about the elderly as victims. 
right? They are a class of people who need to stay home because they are vulnerable. I think we, we, we don't um, sufficiently uh, talk about uh, the elderly as unique individuals with different needs. So I think by relegating to them to people who need to stay at home is so that you will not die. <laughs> we have um, anonymized uh, and dehumanized uh, this uh, all, all our seniors. Yeah, so I think, and that's not something that we, we can address with technology. There's something about the mindset of our society as we talk about senior care during this COVID-19 pandemic. Sure, thank you, Siyun. And Karthik as well, you had a point? Yes, uh, I think uh, more speaking from a personal uh, perspective, I'm, I'm a caregiver to my elderly parents. And the last uh, three, four months have been extremely difficult with them. Uh, they couldn't like what Siyun was saying, step out. So uh, my father actually once said, uh, I just want to drive around in your car and see how Singapore looks now. So we went on a half an hour drive going through all the familiar places and showing them all of that. So I think I, it kind of resonated with me because this is something very personal to all of them. They want to be seen outside. They want to feel normal if there was one such word like that. Uh, so I think that's, that's one comment I have. Uh, back to tech, uh, which we were discussing earlier, uh, I think there are design considerations. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether we will have time to get to that, but uh, I would like to put forward one or two things in terms of design considerations for technology. Uh, the foremost is uh, one, uh, for elder care especially, you need what I call as care plans and a care team approach. It's not a singular physician, but a care team approach, which means all solutions must have that kind of a collaborative design. Uh, secondly, it must have uh, what, what we call as NOK centricity. NOK is next of kin. Next of kin centricity must be there, which means I should be able to share something with them. Or in that uh, earlier example, which uh, you know, I like what Ziyun said about even a basic phone is good enough. Uh, you know, In those kind of situations, uh, if they have something, all that they need to do is uh, you know, just be able to talk to their sons or daughters, uh, speed dial one, speed dial two. And I think that's what I call as NOK centricity uh, in many ways. And uh, that's that's all you need. There was an interesting grand pad I saw some, some years ago. I think it came from Japan. Uh, it had huge fonts and it had the son and daughter. There was a blue color button and a pink color button. And that's all that it had. Uh, you just have to call them and then they had movies and, you know, the daughter was actually uh, recommending movies and setting up a list and the mother would just go through and see all of that. So I think that's, that's kind of what uh, defines technology for me. For me, it is usability and NOK centricity and uh, some of these things, uh, which really I think is what tech is all about. Sure. Uh, thank you, Karthik. I think that's a, that's a, it's a very good point that you brought in. I think it leads very well into a question I, I had for Helen and Wai Chong as well, um, which is regarding, uh, and this is a recurring theme that I'm seeing throughout the, this conversation, which is the importance that technology is person-centered, it's relationship-centered at the end of the day. Uh, so if I could ask maybe uh, Wai Chong first and then Helen, right? Um, do we need to reframe what person-centered care means in a digital age? Uh, is it still possible? I think it might be, given all the many examples you've shared, but uh, yeah, how, how can we reframe or reconceptualize what person-centered care at the end of the day, the day means in a very high-tech, digitized world? So Wai Chong first and then Helen. 
Sure. So, uh, it's my, um, so before I address person-centered care, which I have lots to say, I just want to use this airtime to shout out about the risk of um, ageism and age marginalization, especially during this um, pandemic with the impending recession or depression that we are going to, we may experience, you know, especially with the retrenchment and the older workers may find it very hard. And also at the beginning of the circuit breaker, we've already seen a few cases of, um, I'm not sure whether can I call it shaming on social media of seniors who refuse to wear masks and, and so on. And I think, um, and digitalization, if we do not uh, sort of onboard the seniors well, properly, providing some kind of bridging, this will worsen the divide, you know, when the life in the society is all online and then the older persons become even more marginalized. So this is, uh, so Zuin brought up that point and I felt, um, uh, uh, just wanted to just um, use this air time. With regards to person-centered care, the way I see person-centered care has got two parts. One is, is, is to elicit the preferences and the values of a person. And then so that whatever we want to do is aligned, you know, it doesn't have to be entirely in accordance, but it has to be aligned or taking reference, negotiated, discussed. So taking into the values and preferences into the whole plan of care, but it's two parts. The first part is illicit. To elicit the preference and values is not just a simple Q&A. It is really it is it's a lifelong relationship building. It's something that cannot be easily replaced just through educating how you communicate with the seniors. So a, a doctor and a patient with long duration of um, relationship, these are priceless. So eliciting um, the values and a lot of seniors because of marginalization, alienation and divide and all that, sometimes they um, defer the decisions to their children or to the doctors, but they may not really mean it. You know, It's just that they feel... They don't feel safe telling you. So we need to give, we need to, we need to be worthy of the trust so that we can elicit what's the values and the preferences of the person. And then the very age old, you know, whether you're competent, you're reliable, whether you're authentic, whether you really care. So when you are that, then you can elicit the values and preferences. So this is it is e um it is regardless of the development of technology. So technology, yes, we can actually have a good relationship by your dumb phone of old days. So so online, you know, sometimes um it, um a chat group like this, uh, uh, a Zoom meeting, we can actually still build that relationship and that bond. Um, but of course, it's how you behave, you know, whether you are, um, as I was saying, you're competent, reliable, and uh, are you authentic, and whether are you really caring? So these are the important factors that make, that we can ensure that despite the development, there is still person-centered care in our system. Thank you, Chong. And uh, Helen, any thoughts on this? Thank you, that, that was wonderful and I completely agree. We have to start with what matters to the person and who matters to them, the relationships that they already have. And also where matters to them, where in their community do they still want to be part and, and contribute? Um, Yvonne, could I have the slide that we uh, looked at earlier, please? Sure, can we share the slide on? So, thank Great. you. So I think that um, if we start with what matters to the person, this is something that we call the support sequence to then think through um, with the person, what change they want to make in their life and where technology and other solutions can help. So, for example, one possibility is if what's um, 
getting an older person down is they, they don't feel on top of their house uh, work anymore. Their house is feels disheveled. That's not who they are and, what, and how they want to be. So with the sports sequence, we start with yourself, first of all. I'm a big fan of Marie Kondo. Um, so if this was my mum, I'd be saying, first of all, mum, let's think about you and your skills and your talents and your abilities and all the things that you want to learn to do differently here. So if we did a huge decluttering of your house together, that might help you feel more confident staying on top of it if there's less ornaments and stuff around and, and you can learn to fold your socks like Marie Kondo tells us to. So can we do things to support the person with their skills and abilities and knowledge? And I think technology comes second then. So mum, if, if what you want to change in your life is, is um, sorting out your house and that being clean, how can technology help us? Now I've got three robot hoovers, one on each floor in my house and they're set for a certain time. So they go around and hoover for an hour, um, vacuum up uh, the floors for an hour every day before I get up. So these kinds of things are possible to help you stay on top of keeping your home nice. And then it's are there adaptations or, or things that we can make around the home that makes it easier for you to keep on top of your housework and keeping the home nice, mum, let's think about that. Um, and then it's the contribution of friends and family. So I see my mum each week and um, one possibility is, is I clean with mum on the visits that I spend with my mum each week and we spend part of our time doing that together. The next one is community. So are there three or four friends of mums who'd also like help to keep their house clean? And could we employ somebody that works for three or four friends? And then it might be using agency. But what we typically do in services is we go straight for the solution must be paid staff. And we jump through, we miss out all of those steps and go for paid staff. So I think if we start seeing technology as one potential solution based on what matters to an older person and the change they want to see in their life, then by definition, it will always be person-centered. Great, thank you very much, Helen. Um, so we can almost move into Q&A, but uh, sorry, Karthik, did you have a point? Yes, just a quick point. Yes, uh, sure. Just a quick point on person-centered care. Uh, sure. One of the way technology has to be built, again, I come back to the design principle for technology, is uh, in Singapore, for example, we have uh, three formats of care. There is a daycare, there is a home care, and there is a residential care. Uh, so as a person traverses through each format of care, uh, their information should be seamlessly uh, moved from one provider to the other. And this is what I call as a multimodal care or a, a patient-centered care. And so if, and it is not unreasonable to expect that these three kinds of providers will be in the same geographical vicinity. And so it should be easier for us. So when we design technology, that's exactly what we must be doing. And they're quite happy to say we recognized this about two, three years ago. We worked on it. It required a fundamental uh, architectural change in the technology that we had, which we did. But today, that's something that's become very important. Great. Thank you, Karthik. And I'm glad that actually we ended this discussion on uh, very practical considerations uh, for, for the design of age-friendly and person-centered technology. So that was great. Um, so we can move now to the Q&A segment. Um, a reminder again to participants tuning in to please send in any questions you may have for the panelists via Facebook. Uh, okay, so we'll get to the first question here. 
Um, and this is by Professor uh, Pua Kai Hong from the Lee Kuan Yew School. Uh, his question is, it seems that the use of IT seems more relevant for post-COVID-19 elder care, but requires more carer and family support as well. What's the trade-off between the use of labor versus capital um, in using technology? So would anybody like to take this question? So maybe maybe I will uh, take a shot at it. Uh, sure. I think I think uh, we are not looking to to use the word. Uh, I think it was Yoon who said that dehumanize uh, some of the care that is being delivered. Uh, for example, in the AI chatbot example we discussed earlier, uh, a nurse would typically in a ward round go around to the bedside of a patient, take some of the vitals, go back to the nursing station, enter it and come back and go to the next one and so on and so forth. So each walk back, even if it is 20, 50 meters, opening the application, putting some data in, coming back, takes a certain amount of time. So if they could just use their phone and speak into it and that updated the EMR on the other side, and then she just moves on to the next uh, you know, uh, patient and you know, if you keep doing that, you will realize over a period of an eight hour shift, you can actually save 40 to 50 minutes. You're not reducing interaction, you are improving productivity and you're able to do all of this. So uh, not necessarily everything would dehumanize or there needs to be a trade-off. Some are very clear, there is no trade-off, there's only an upside. Sure, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Why Chong and then see you. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm not, uh, entirely certain that the caregivers will be really, really necessary or very involved when we introduce technology, perhaps at the current state of development, yes. But I think uh, the introduction of technology requires more than just introduction of technology. There has to be a larger uh, design thinking involved in the infrastructure development, the availability of 5G network, the, the cables at every household, the broadband, and then the connecting of sensors and you know, the internet of things. So with that, perhaps um, the caregivers uh, and also with services that support this. For example, um, in Singapore, the Changi General Hospital have the care line, the, um, the hotline for seniors to contact. And then if this all can be integrated together, some kind of 24 hours um, monitoring and then connected by uh, um, IoT and also appropriate use of technology with a very specialized um, manpower. So this is another point that we may need to think about. It's the new demand for skills and what kind of uh, manpower care staff with um, te technology knowledge. So with a, a well-curated choice of um, different equipment and then uh, customized according to the needs of the senior and the caregiver, supported by a, a whole infrastructure, urban design, um, availability of um, easy access to cheap uh, broadband services, then perhaps the caregiving can also go light. But at this stage, you need hand-holding. You need somebody to orientate and coach the senior into the use of apps and, and smartphones. Yes, but perhaps in the future, it might not be like this. You just need a little bit more design thinking. Sure. See? Um, regarding this issue of a trade-off between labor and capital, I think in healthcare, uh, as uh, in my opening remarks, I talked about technology use needing to help achieve the quadruple aim of uh, patient outcomes, healthcare cost, uh, productivity, 
and also uh, um, uh, clinical uh, uh, provider satisfaction. So I think that if we just focus on the trade-off between labor and capital, that's not going to allow us to fully appreciate the use of a technology. Uh, and in fact, if we if we simply focus on our in our technology evaluation on productivity, we are sometimes likely to not invest rather than invest. And in Singapore, especially when we have uh, an abundance of regional uh, nursing labor, right, who are relatively uh, uh, who are who are who are. Uh, um, relatively cost effective. Uh, it actually, uh, so if we evaluate technology just on against uh, productivity, we may result in not investing rather than investing. Um, in, in, in many countries, when we evaluate technology, we'd also look at outcomes, we'd also look at uh, uh, the uh, use of uh, the long-term decrease in the use of healthcare costs, and then productivity and uh, also, uh, clinical uh, uh, provider satisfaction with their with their work. Sure, thank you, Soon. Uh, Helen, do you have any comments on this particular question? Yes, I wanted to talk to uh, the training of care staff in relation to this. And I think it does require um, a different perspective because if care staff are not confident in using technology in their own lives, the chances of them being able to confidently support older people to use it is, is limited. So with our very first um, wellbeing team, we bought each care staff, they're were, they were 30 pounds, an Alexa dot. Um, which was uh, the entry level Alexa. And we gave them to them as part of the induction to say, now let's take that home, get your children to show you how to use it. And let's, let's explore different ways of using Alexa in your own lives. And then let's think about how Alexa can support the older people that you work with. And at the end of probation, we bought people basic uh, Fitbits to start looking at tracking their data and thinking about how they can use it. And in their training, we used virtual reality headsets to explore the experience of people living with dementia. So I think it does require a different way of thinking about technology, but it's about making sure people are confident. And we also gave people smartphones with a number of apps on, because I think the entry to thinking about technology is what apps can we use together with people and how can we use Facebook and WhatsApp and Zoom in new ways. Thank you, Helen. Um, we have a related question here. Um, uh, relating to caregivers from Le Kim Sia, uh, who asks, can you also share about the future of technology for caregivers, especially caregivers of physically dependent seniors or seniors with dementia? Uh, would anyone like to take this one? Helen? Yeah, go ahead. Can I start with, with a challenge that I experienced uh, this week? Um, I'm of supporting course. <laughs> I'm supporting a family whose um, husband has got, got dementia and, and uh, we were talking about experiences she'd had this week three times to a health colleague, a consultant, to a social worker in adult social care and to a memory clinic. She had to tell her story and the story of, of her experience supporting her partner who experiences dementia. Each of those times took about an hour and a half. And at the end, with frustration, she said to the social worker, why am I having to tell my story again? This is the third time this week. And the social worker said, because our systems don't talk to each other. And that has to be the absolute place to start. And I love the sort of being next of kin centric and next of kin friendly. 
we need to stop people having to tell their story again and, and again and again and make sure our system can talk to each other and also make sure people themselves and next of kin have access to the relevant information too. So for me, that absolutely has to be a place to start. Sure. Thank you very much, Helen. Anybody else would like uh, to comment on this? Caregivers? Yeah, Karthik? Yeah. Uh, uh, strangely enough, from a tech, tech person, I would like to offer a non-tech uh, perspective. Uh, sure. This, I, uh, I haven't seen this in person, but I read about it. In Japan, I believe it is the entire community which is brought together to support people suffering from dementia. Uh, one of the things that they found was elders would walk into stores, pick up things and forget to pay for them uh, at, on their way out. And, you know, in the, in the past, the alarms would go off and, you know, all of those things would happen. But what they did was they worked with the community and they said, these are the ways in which you could identify such people from dementia, suffering from dementia. And then they would call the next of kin and say, this is what your father or mother took, you know, and then it could be squared up. So I think in, in trying to solve some of these problems, we sometimes become so uh, focused in trying to bring a tech solution, we forget the hum, you know, human aspect of it. Uh, similarly, I read in, uh, I believe in the UK it was, uh, there is a special time for seniors with dementia when they would bring down the lights in the malls and the stores and they would turn the music off. Uh, all this was meant to make their shopping experience more uh, relaxed and more normal as far as normal could be. So I think sometimes tech uh, doesn't need to be on. We need to understand how it should be off. Uh, so I think we also need to find out how do we synchronize and do all of that. Uh, so I think that's that's uh, my view on tech. Great, thank you, Karthik. Uh, does um, Waichong or Suyun have any comments on this question? Yeah. Yeah, I just have a very short one. Um, I I feel that um, the aged care industry is one of um, the industry I still believe that will be resistant to technology disruption. You know, if this if technology disruption were to impact economy, I think the aged care industry is quite resistant because there's still a lot of need for human touch and all that. But having said that, um, the technology will have a big role, improving in the outcomes, improving in productivity, definitely. But it will not take the place of where human comes in. Like for example, if we take care of a person with dementia, take care of a person with physical disability, perhaps it is um, the use of sensor technology, the use of a remote monitoring of sounds and also I've been experimenting with these robots huh, where um, um, for my friend's mother who lives on his her own so the robot is in the living room and then you can just connect into the living room and then call out for mother so something very simple as that it does it relieves the anxiety of the caregiver so this is um, this helps but then you still need the involvement by the caregivers the the, the family members also for dementia we know the, the robotic um, seal, you know, it, it, it helps. And uh, so uh, I think I echo what Katik says is um, technology supporting caregiving, but it will not replace caregiving. Great. Thank you very much, Wai Chong. Uh, so we have one more question here uh, by Ian Yeo on just the broad topic of um, affordability and accessibility of, of technology. Uh, so many elder care initiatives seem to depend on governments or nonprofit organizations. Uh, for sustainability, is there a place for commercial business to thrive in elder care? 
so that these will meet the needs for those who can afford it while allowing subsidized services to be provided by governments or, or non-profit organizations. Yeah. <coughs> Go ahead, Karthik. Can I take? Yeah, I think, I think this was a point that I did want to raise in this forum. Uh, I think this is uh, collectively, I would say, on behalf of all people who provide technology to the elder care. I think we have to realize one thing, elder care is funded either by elders themselves uh, in certain countries, which means they have uh, not much of money and they're depending on their retirement income, or in many cases by uh, the governments uh, in those countries. So money is not going to be in abundant supply. Uh, this also means that unlike acute care, uh, we will have some impact on the innovation. Uh, so far, I am seeing that, uh, you know, it's not a whole lot people are investing, but if the current uh, unit monetization or unit realization of uh, revenue per uh, piece of technology, if I were to use that term, uh, keeps going down, um, it might become unsustainable at some point in time. So I would ask uh, from a policy perspective, you know, we should probably look at finding more uh, sustainable ways for technology companies to keep on investing. We have invested, but our view was, you know, Asia will eventually have 1.3 billion people by the year 2050 uh, with over 65 years, uh, but 2050 is another 30 years away. So, uh, you know, we will have to wait for the next generation of leadership in Napier to look at that business opportunity. Thank you, Karthik. See you. Yeah, I, I think uh, this question really uh, brings us to this bigger uh, the, the, this this issue of how is technology uh, or how is healthcare financed, and in other countries or in health systems that have that are making steps to uh, push out telehealth, I think there's a very clear alignment between the in the financial arrangements uh, who benefits from uh, from the use of telehealth. Uh, in those systems, you know the uh, the benefits to the payers, to the hospitals, and to the patients are uh, generally very well worked out. Um, there is no conflict between them. In fact, they, it's it's a reinforcing system uh, of 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 reimbursement. Um, unfortunately, in Asia, our health systems, uh, our our healthcare reimbursement systems are a little bit complex. Uh, we have multiple payers, and uh, in, in Singapore, our, our health funding system is, is very complex. Uh, the MediShield and ILTC subsidies and corporate healthcare. Um, I think that if we want to push technology adoption and this new care model uh, introduction, we really need to sit down and ask and, and rationalize our healthcare financing system. Right? Uh, in order to push ahead with new care models uh, that are that are assisted by new technologies. Great, thank you, Siyun. Any other comments? Or can I move to the... Uh, Raichal? Just wondering, uh, just a thought. Perhaps okay. um, technology to support seniors, uh, you know, because they're so heterogeneous, so many kinds, you know, one technology may only meet a certain segment of the people. So you have to think of technology as a big group. Maybe the funding shouldn't come from health, but come from some kind of infrastructure. Just a thought. MND, mm -hmm. MOT. Mm -hmm. MSF, <laughs> Social and Family Development. Uh, thank you. So we have a question here also about uh, privacy and the rights of older persons. Um, do medical and care concerns trump 
privacy concerns of seniors requiring care. Um, what about uh, those suffering from uh, severe cognitive challenges and who are unlikely to be able to provide informed consent in this case? Any thoughts? Yeah. Uh, sure. so, so this is a very important uh, discussion, mm. especially with technology development. Um, medical ethics need to uh, need to develop to to confront the different challenges faced by new possibilities. And uh, indeed, we did have an um, issue um, uh, years ago. Uh, I mean, we have people living with dementia on their own, and then the family want to put CCTV in the house. And uh, we have visiting uh, professors from all around the world who were like, no, no to all this. And uh, because it's so uh, infringing of a person's rights. And then, uh, then when I asked among my colleagues, the nurses, the social workers, doctors, would you want and your children to be monitoring you? And most of them say yes. So, I, um, <laughs> so I'm just thinking, uh, would privacy trump health and medical or would which one trump which other? The best is to ask the older person himself, you know, what are his priorities? Is he comfortable to have his family members seeing him uh, in, her, in his elements, in his living room or even in the bedroom? So I think we need to ask them. But when it comes to an older person who, cannot, you know, who can no longer speak, or who can, you know, we will need to have other safeguards like the, the latest, um, I mean, our Mental Capacity Act, the DONI, you know, they have to speak on their behalf. And of course, uh, there has to be some kind of uh, ethical guidance to, to this. Autonomy, beneficence, maleficence, justice. You know, you have to weigh the, um, the, these uh, competing uh, values sometimes. Yes, thank you, Wai Chung. Uh, Karthik, did you have a point as well on this? Question? No, not not much except to say that uh, technology can only help in identification uh, without intrusive means. Uh, you know, you could you could probably get better and better with it. Uh, I don't know. I, I read some report somewhere that you could look at, uh, you know, smells of uh, people and then based on that, you could uh, come up with some identification. But these are probably still in the realms of uh, science fiction at this point in time. Uh, but you know, technology will come to that point where it will help in identification. But again, uh, if someone is uh, cognitively incapacitated, I think that probably requires a policy response, not a technology response. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Karthik. And Helen as well? I completely agree. I I'm not sure yeah. why we treat technology any differently to how we're treating other um, situations and decisions that get made in people's lives and ideally with them. Um, and it has to start with what matters to the person, you know, what's working and not working in their life, um, their decision um, based on in informed choice. And if they can't tell us directly themselves, in the UK it would be called a best interest decision uh, meeting where the people who know and love the person and the relevant professionals would come together and ideally achieve a consensus on behalf of the person. So I don't think technology should be any different in any of the decisions that we make. Sure. Thank you, Helen. And I think, you know, what's something that's related to this is, again, the, the primacy and the centrality of older people's preferences themselves in the design of technology. 
Um, do you think that there are some practical ways in which older people themselves can be involved in the design of technologies? Most of the time this happens, you know, in a sandbox or somewhere far away from where older people themselves can not only give consent, but even just ideas for what they would like. Um, any thoughts on how, you know, older people can be brought into that process? Any practical ways which we can do this going forward? Yes, Karthik? Uh, that's that's a tough one. Um, so I I'd like to give you both the answers, a yes and a no. Uh, Steve Jobs once said, if I had asked everyone how should I design the next phone, he said I would have designed probably the best basic phone ever. Uh, so his point was, user doesn't know what they want. Uh, and at the same point in time, I think today any innovation or any product that you put out, uh, eventually it is going to be used by the user the commercial success or lag thereof will actually tell you whether it works or doesn't work. Uh, so long as, like I mentioned in my opening remarks as well, so long as your design consideration is based on next of kin, uh, collaborative team effort and usability, I think you would have probably covered most of it. Uh, no product can be built 100% uh, and released to the market at the point of uh, launch. Uh, for example, what many people might not even know, iPhone 3S did not have a cut, copy, paste feature when it was first launched in iPhone 3S. Today, you wouldn't be able to sell a phone if it didn't have that feature. So uh, that's that's kind of both a yes and a no. <laughs> Thank you, Karthik. I just want to draw up a comment here made by uh, Lily Chung and Patricia Lee on this point, um, who said that you know we can start recording the senior stories their past histories, likes and dislikes in terms of food and other things and keep the data in some sort of repository. Um, and I think that this speaks to very much of, of what Helen, Wai Chong, you guys were talking about in terms of uh, working with seniors and kind of community initiatives. And perhaps one solution could be just to get stories from them, qualitative you know, research uh, or drawing the stories out, putting it in some sort of central depository that is then made available to the tech developers or policymakers or or you know, other groups that might be interested in these. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so I think we have time for perhaps one more question. Um, okay, so this is a question by uh, Najat Fatima who asks, video consultation has been one of the first technologies used in the community setting. Uh, has there been any other study or, or ideas on, on which platforms have also worked well in community settings? So smartphones, tablets, uh, uh, telepresence, robots, etc. Any other innovative ways to use technology in the community? Um, well, Share I... Yeah, I don't uh, haven't done any research per se related to teleconsult, but I am aware of uh, um, uh, works done by other uh, researchers in Singapore, particularly um, uh, SMU. You know, with uh, they use the um, with the Monfort Care, they use um, um, sensor technology IoT and able to monitor uh, seniors in their home and. Uh, um, yeah, from what I heard, uh, especially during this um, circuit breaker, it had made a difference in identifying seniors at risk based on the movement, their patterns of movement. So um, I think there are, um, there are research uh, in Singapore uh, that um, it's just that uh, I'm not sure whether the other panelists have any um, awareness about Katik perhaps. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So uh, I think it's about five years ago, we did a pilot in HTB uh, in Woodlands where uh, we looked at some of the IoT devices in those days. We triangulated the coordinates of a person who's living alone uh, to, to essentially uh, understand fault detection uh, because for a senior living alone at home, if they went into the washroom and did not appear out after 30 or 45 minutes, uh, you know, we had sensors which could triangulate it because you obviously can't put a camera in the toilet, for example, that would be a no-no. Uh, or similarly, if they were lying down on the sofa and they haven't moved for the last one, one and a half hours and the TV is on, for example. So you could do some of those uh, kind of things to kind of understand a person living alone and how do you support in case of fall detection or some accident. And uh, if, if for the others outside of Singapore, we have this thing called a pull cord in the HDBs. Uh, you know, that's kind of, a, it's a device that helps basically a person living alone seek help. So we tried to put that, uh, substitute that with a buzzer so that the buzzer would go off only in that floor or within that, uh, you know, apartment block and some of the social workers or some other caregivers who signed up for community care could come in and help them. So again, um, I think the recurring theme as I come to think more of this is there has to be a broader community involved in caring for our elders. Our elders are a community responsibility, not just an individual responsibility. So it needs a community response. It needs a social response. Uh, also, I think, uh, Moving on to one of my other pet subjects, I think it also needs an intergenerational approach to care, which I think a lot of policy making does not take into account. No one wants to be living in a nursing home full of elderly, or you know, we had the NIMBY syndrome in Singapore. So you have all of those attendant issues which do come up. Sure. Thank you very much, Karthik. Um, I think that will bring us to the end of the Q&A segment. We have about five to six minutes left. Um, so just before closing off today's discussion, which I think has been a really great one, um, I want to ask each panelist one final uh, question. So if all of you could speak directly now to a policymaker or to a tech developer or an aged care provider, uh, what would you say is the most important consideration that they should have as technology occupies a greater role in senior care. And perhaps we can take the order that uh, we had at the very beginning. So Siyun, Karthik, Helen, and then Waichang. Okay, I get to go first. Um, <laughs> I think that um, my advice to, uh, to startups who want to enter the space uh, and my, my comments to uh, friends in MOH uh, and my, my comments to the, to the healthcare providers would revolve around this issue of healthcare financing. Right? I think to the, to the startups, I would say, don't enter this market until you are sure that there is a reimbursement framework for your product. For my, my, my friends at MOH, I would really encourage them to, let's look at our healthcare financing to see how we can support the push out of new technology and new care models. Because right now, I think it's not very clear that um, uh, uh, that that the, the different parties would all benefit equally, and I think that is has been the the uh, the, the major uh, inhibitor in the push out of of, of new technologies uh, in in healthcare. Um, and then my my final 
the comment for my healthcare, the healthcare providers who are healthcare providers, to, in my experience, have tended to be very excited actually about technology. Um, but I think what holds them back still is this issue of healthcare financing. How are they going to continue to be business sustainable uh, with these new technologies? I think all, all parties, the, the vendors, the healthcare providers, and the payer need to come together to resolve this issue. Very good point. Thank you, Siyun. Uh, yes, I think from my point of view, uh, I, I believe social care must be prioritized. A lot of the current uh, solutions that we are applying in elder care are not looking at social care as the first uh, step. Um, to me, intergenerational care is very, very important, which means we should not be setting up enclaves of elderly people in either retirement villages or retirement homes, posh or otherwise does not matter. Residential care, in my view, must be the last line of defense for a uh, you know, concentrated group of people. Uh, similarly, I think if we want to put money in one place first, I think I would put my money into chronic disease management, uh, especially those that get into lifestyle issues at the age of 45, 50. Uh, I think if we control that flow, uh, I think the overall uh, burden of healthcare system would probably come down a lot more than what it is today. Um, I think that brings us to the wellness point that Helen was also talking about. I think wellness plays a big uh, factor there. Uh, the second thing which I'm seeing, which I think uh, most people will also understand is home care is going to be the big area of growth. Home care will be the first line of defense in my view after the chronic disease management uh, has been taken care of. So in the order of priority, I would say chronic disease management, home care and residential care at the end. But uh, every focus design of policy or technology should take care of social care and intergenerational care. Thank you, Karthik. Hello. I would say that it's critical that we see technology as an enabler as a, of a good life, not just health related, but addressing Atal Gandhi's loneliness, um, helplessness and, and boredom. So thinking about it that way. And I, I would think that our priority is using what's already available. So older people being supported to use apps, to use Zoom, to keep in touch with people and to use wearables for data and health data. It is important that we develop new things, but we're nowhere near utilizing what's already available. Great, thank you, Helen and Wai Chong. Yeah, so uh, to the policymakers, especially in the age of this pandemic, you know, um, interfacing with aged care and the demands of long-term care, I think we need to think um, institution-light, community-heavy. So it's like decentralization and how do you enable that? And uh, that would involve the whole um, urban design, infrastructure development and um, availability of um, um, uh, sustainable 5G networks, uh, Wi-Fi and, and so on to make it easy. And then in the development of manpower in healthcare, they have to be tech-savvy and the technologies need to understand gerontology and ageing. And also people need to be cross-disciplinary and learn how to work in a team. And uh, in the future, especially with uh, not just technology development, but also medical precision medicine, improvement in treatment, preventing diseases. So at the end, um, 
I was saying just now, it will be what's left is mental health. It'll be so the 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 manpower that we train need to be very skilled in uh, taking care of um, well-being, resilience, uh, mental health. Not exactly the clinical depression, uh, anxiety per se, but really how to promote that. And um, yeah, so uh, the policymakers maybe have to think more community, the infrastructure support and the manpower to be ready. And with regards to technology development, um, I echo what all of uh, the panelists have been saying. Technology alone, uh, it will be like an ivory tower. They need to, they have to work with um, service providers who are experienced in aging. And this too is also not enough. They need to have business acumen. So the businessman has to come in to make sure that there is a business case to it. And still not enough, you need to have academic to really research and develop and also un and appraise and see where's the value to it. And then finally, the policymakers need to come in because the, the payer may not be the consumer. It could be the state. So these five parties need to come together and we need to create a kind of a, a catalyst of a kind of a a bedrock to, to, to allow these five parties to come together and create a technology that really works and is sustainable and is person-centered. Great. Thank you so much, Wai Chong. Uh, and on that note, I want to thank all our panelists today for your contributions and for your time. Uh, thank you too to all participants for joining us. And we hope that this discussion has been enriching and valuable to you. Uh, it definitely has been for me. So I'll pass the floor back now to Chris for some closing remarks. Okay, thank you all everybody uh, for all your contributions. And I'd like to join in with Yvonne's thanks to our panelists, uh, Siyun, Kartik, Helen, and Wai Chong, who have shared with us so many important insights today, which we hope will lead to some meaningful solutions, both in technology, in practice, and in policymaking. I'm also very grateful to Yvonne for so ably leading our discussions today. As we continue in the series and strive to get better at these online sessions, please can I ask you all to help us fill up the feedback form, the link for which uh, is in the com comment section. So thank you again and good evening. Thank you. Thank you.